people don't just get better all overnight. You know, we have in our mind that someone like has this epiphany. I, I sometimes call it like this come to Jesus moment or something yeah. where it's like, you're, you're in the south and then he appears to you and then you're cured it does not happen that way it's like this it's more of a long drawn out process that has a lot of like steps forward and steps backwards and that not only wears you out but it wears your family out and then so they start to think well you don't even mean it and you're just lying when you said you were going to try to do better and then and then you actually start to believe that yourself you are listening to the one day at a time podcast On this podcast, my guests share their stories of alcoholism, addiction, and how they recovered so that you can too. My hope is that you find the inspiration and resources you need to let go of what's holding you back so that you can transform into the person you were always meant to be. Ready? Here we go. Hey friend, thank you for downloading the podcast. My name is Arlena and I'll be your host. Today, my guest is Amber Hollingsworth. She is the owner, founder, and counselor at Hope for Families. Amber grew up in a family plagued with addiction, so she has firsthand experience of what it's like to live in a dysfunctional home. She also is a content creator and has a very educational YouTube channel called Put the Shovel Down. So I highly recommend you check that out too. I learned so much from speaking with Amber and I hope you will too. Before we jump in, I want to say thank you for all the amazing feedback on the last episode with Dr. David Spiegel. Lots of you told me that you've already downloaded the Reverie app and have started learning self-hypnosis. For those of you who would like me to support you with one-on-one online support, I offer a series of hypnosis sessions to help you resolve long-standing patterns. Patterns like procrastination, self-sabotage, low confidence, and of course, cravings. I call it the breakthrough process. And if you would like to learn more, just visit SoberLifeSchool.com and book a strategy call with me today. We can even do the Spiegel eye roll test to determine how hypnotizable you are. And as always, if you need some free sobriety resources, get the 100 resources for your first 100 days. It's available for download at SoberLifeSchool.com. So that's it. Please enjoy this episode with Amber. Well, Amber, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I'm super excited to have you. I was all giggly because I was like, "You, we're going to have so much to talk about because you are in you are in my world and we can totally nerd out about all things recovery. So, but today we're going to sort of focus on, um, we're going to focus on a, a few things because I'm 80. I apparently had too much coffee this morning, but <laughs> is there such a thing? It's too much caffeine. I don't, oh, even know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll hear the feedback. Yeah. Um, so it's so interesting because I wanted to sort of take this back to sort of starting points, you know, um, how to get your family off your back. We were going to talk a little bit about relapse prevention. And then, you know, what do you do if you do relapse? That's not something that I've really spent a lot of time talking about on the podcast. And mm-hmm. that's that's in your world. So I can't wait to hear all the things that you think about it. But uh, before we jump in, it's always kind of nice to get to know you a little bit. And um, addiction is not something that you experience personally, uh, like directly, like you didn't struggle with addiction issues, but you had addiction in your life that you were affected by. Can you share a little bit about what what your experience was and and, uh, what inspired you to be in the line of work you're in? Yeah. I mean, it's one of the first questions that a lot of people want to ask is, you know, how did you, why did you decide to become an addiction counselor? And I really wish I had like a more romantic story about it because most people do. And I kind of feel like, dang, oh, I feel like left out a little bit, uh-huh. but um, I got here sort of indirectly. Um, I do come from an addicted family, like very, very, very addicted family, like all the grandparents, um, my sister, or my mother, um, it just, it's just rampant, like everywhere. And so m- most people might say, well, you know, I was just sort of, um, I was sort of motivated by that. And I just wanted to help people because I grew up in a family, but that's not even how I got here. I got here because, <laughs> because I couldn't afford to take a year off of school to intern as a school counselor. And so I, my first job was being a teacher. And then I decided I would like get like a master's degree in counseling. And so naturally I thought school counseling, well, 
I couldn't really afford to like take off a whole year to intern as school counselor and not get paid because I was like out of my own married and everything. And so um, I decided to switch at the last minute to community counseling. And when I did that, and then I sort of got set up for my internship, I got put in a substance abuse program, like an IOP. And that's kind of how I found my way into this. And to be honest, is is crazy as this sounds, I didn't even realize how, like, that I came from an addictive family until Mm -hmm. I was in the program. So it would be so much more romantic to be able to say, I was inspired, and then I got here. But it was more like I got here, and then maybe I was inspired, sort of backwards as from most people. But I got to tell you what, like, no matter how I got here, it feels like I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do anything else. It feels like absolutely the right spot. And I think for a lot of people who come to see me for addiction, they think, well, you know, you're not going to understand me and are you going to judge me? And they may even think because I come from an addictive family that I might even judge them more because I might like project onto them. But the thing of it is, is like, even though I came from an addictive family, I still thought they were a great family, you know, Mm -hmm. and yes, they had addictions, but they were great people. You know, I don't have a single memory of my Mimi without a glass of vodka in her hand, zero, (laughs) but I just, there's no one, you know, that loved me more that I could love more than my Mimi. So I guess in my mind, I, I don't see, I can see that someone can have this issue and it's not all of who they are, if that makes sense. And same, same with my mom. My mom was like the cool mom. Like she was pretty, you know, she was sort of like stereotypical hairdresser style, like what you would think like as a hairdresser, that's what she was like as a mom. Um, And yeah, they had issues, but I wouldn't say I had a horrible childhood. There were some things about it that looking back now, I'm like, that's not right. But honestly, in the time, you know, you, it's your normal. So you don't even realize it. So that's how I got here. And, um, Like I said, I wouldn't rather do anything else. I just love it. Yeah. I would imagine that you have a sensitivity and a heart for it because of your experience like that. And that's the beautiful thing about recovery is that we can use our experience uh, to connect with others. I think that makes you actually uniquely qualified to be uh, in the position that you're in because you do have a sensitivity and a heart for it. You Mm -hmm. actually loved and cared about the people who were addicted and you saw them. I love what you said. You saw them more than their addiction. Mm -hmm. And that's a beautiful thing Um, Mm -hmm. because that the addiction, the addicted part of us is not the, obviously not the best part of us. Right. Right. And even now, I don't know if it's, you know, I say sometimes it's sort of one of my gifts. One of the things I'm pretty good at is like, seeing what other people are good at. And it's kind of a gift and a curse, to be honest. Like I fully understand see the potential, <laughs> like more than I, you know, I understand it more than I wish I did sometimes, but I can see who someone is underneath that. And then mm-hmm. it just makes me crazy trying to like pull that out of them because I can see what's there that this addiction is roadblocking and stopping and messing up for someone. Yeah. I thought what was really interesting when we had our pre-chat, I thought what was really interesting was your ability to meet people where they're at Mm -hmm. with love and compassion. Like that's, that's really, and that's huge for me. Like I see addiction through the lens of empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. I really got from you that, that you were able to sort of meet people where they were at and provide that love and compassion because you're seeing the the best parts of them. So. Right. And I think, um, even though I don't have the great story, like a lot of addiction counselors have, I wish I'd be I think je- I'm totally jealous, story. but like, um, one thing I think that is a benefit is because a lot of times if you are, I think in recovery, then, you know, you, you sort of immediately are coming to another person like, all right, let's get this done. Let's make these changes. You know, you, let's, we're here to do business. And <laughs> For me, one of my first assignments was I had to do, because I had taught high school and I had this job in the psych hospital as a new baby counselor, they assigned me to create like the substance abuse program for teenagers. And these were teenagers that were mostly coming out of like acute care, like a week of detox or had been like suicidal or something like really serious. Yeah. Naturally none of those kids want to be coming to see me. (laughs) I didn't have the luxury ever of working with people who were ready to make a change. (laughs) No one ever come to see me wanted to come see me. So I had to really not just like understand addiction, but understand how to connect with people and, and motivate them to at least want to be there and to have a good experience with it. Because I just, 
you know, sometimes you go to a treatment center and you work with people who are like, okay, that's it. I've hit my bottom, you know, I'm done. Right. Well, I never had that. So yeah. I, so I do work really well with people who are in those like early stages of change. That's really important. I think that's a gift, you know, and I, I actually like your story. I mean, you, something came to you that resonated with you and sparked, you know, inspiration and, and engagement and had mm-hmm. heart and meaning. So I think that's a great story. I, I mean, <laughs> so many people never find their purpose. So I'm glad you found yours. That's, that's amazing. Um, okay. So let's kind of start at the beginning when somebody is first starting, you know, they're at, you know, maybe it's not a teenager, but I don't think I have a lot of teenagers listening to my podcast, but like, it doesn't like it's the stages are the same. Teenager. Yeah. No matter what age. Right. Yeah. 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 And I think a lot of people that listen to my podcast are either thinking about it or they're in the early stages. I mean, I, I do know that there are a lot of listeners who are in long-term recovery who are looking to go deeper in their sobriety mm-hmm. practice, but let's start at the beginning. Like at the beginning, has a very, has a lot of typical, uh, feelings. The family is angry and the family could either be, uh, children. Like if you're a mom and you have kids that are angry at you, mm-hmm. maybe you have a spouse that's, you know, hanging on by a thread. Like they don't know how much longer they can, they can do this. Or even if, you know, you're young and your parents are trying to help you, they might be at their wits end as well. So, you can pick that up uh, wherever you'd like, but it's sort of like, you know, how, how does somebody in early recovery uh, address their family who might be angry? I think the biggest problem that comes into play is that people don't just get better all overnight. You know, we have in our mind that someone like has this epiphany. I, I sometimes call it like this come to Jesus moment or something yeah. where it's like, <laughs> You're in the south, and then he appears to you, and then you're cured. It does not happen that way. It's like this it's more of a long, drawn out process that has a lot of like steps forward and steps backwards. And that not only wears you out, but it wears your family out. And then so they start to think, well, you don't even mean it, and you're just lying when you said you were going to try to do better. And then, and then you actually start to believe that yourself. I mean, I've seen a lot of people who said, well, I probably, I didn't even really mean it, or I wasn't doing it for the right reasons. And we'll convince ourselves of those kind of things. And it's a learning process and no one gets it overnight. There's going to be a lot of bargaining, I call it, which is sort of like Mm -hmm. a trial and error process that we all go through in our journey to really like getting where we want to be, you know, and, and we all, you kind of have to like try all the ideas that you have before you really come to terms with, I'm probably just going to let this go like completely. (laughs) But in order to get there, we all have to sort of, can I cut it back? Can it just be weekends? Can it just be beer and not liquor? Can, what if I, you know, measure and just have so many standard drinking units? What if I just buy the mini bottles? What if I just drink wine? What if, you know, you know, it only on special occasions, all these different ways that we bargain with it and try those really are, efforts that we're making to try to get the problem under control and get better. Now, I'll admit that a lot of times, most of the time, those efforts are not successful, but it doesn't mean that you're not trying and you're and for your family, when your family's witnessing that, it doesn't mean that a person's not trying. When families come to us and they say, I'm like, oh, that's great. Like they tried that. Okay, good. Like and the family's frustrated because the family's like, it's not going to work. I'm like, you're probably right, but like we're checking it off the list. Like we got to go through these things to figure out what's going to work for somebody. So one of the things you can do is just look at it through that different lens, I think is super helpful and, and helping the family understand that I think is also helpful. I mean, I think that's, I think the, that question, it's like, can I manage my drinking if I try all these different strategies Um, that is a very important question to answer. There are people who should not ingest alcohol because their behavior changes. They can't control it. They can't stop and for a variety of reasons. So that's typically, you know, why we're all here. (laughs) I can go into why that is if you want me to nerd out on that, but what's that? I said, I can go into why that is the way it is. Cause I can get, okay, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of pieces to it, but one piece I want to say specifically with alcohol is what alcohol does is it turns down the volume like really low on the front part of your decision-making brain. And that's the part that can say stop. 
So you're deactivating the stop part of the brain. Literally, that's what the drug does. So it's easy to be like, you know, well, I'm able to control all these other things in my life. Like I see a lot of CEOs, doctors, lawyers, Iron Man, you know, marathon, just they do all kind of crazy willpower stuff. And so it doesn't make sense. Like I control this and everything else. You know, why can't I control that? And it's because alcohol turns off the part of your brain that would let you do that. That's that's one of the huge reasons, I think, specifically when it comes to alcoholism. So it's really about biology and understanding how the brain works, how willpower works and that kind of thing. And then the other thing that I say to a lot of my clients is like, is I really try to say, okay, if you could just drink two beers, is that really fun? <laughs> you know, like, so first of all, I'm saying probably can't, but if you could, let's be real about it. What, what good is that? <laughs> and then, so that's the other thing I think that people come to terms with. I'm like, even if you can manage it, it's so freaking miserable. Like you're going to be constantly like trying to fight it and hold it back and wanting to and restraining yourself. And then a lot of people that I see, they just come to terms with like, it's too much work. It's not even fun to drink two beers. Like why? Why put yourself through it? I'm like, right. It's just harder. <laughs> so there's just, there's a lot of science into it, but how do you answer the question? Cause I had that experience when I first stopped drinking is like, what makes me different? Because I was around other people who, you know, yes, when we ingest alcohol, it does, it does that to everybody, but some people can stop. Why is it that some people can stop and some people can't? Well, I like some people believe like some people can turn into addicts and some can't. And I don't really believe that. I think if you put an addictive substance in your body long enough, you're going to get addicted to it. Like, agreed. I mean, just anybody can turn themselves into alcoholic if you want to. So, but one of the things that happens is when you start drinking regularly, your brain starts to put that process on autopilot because that's what our brain does. It tries to put everything it can on autopilot so that our energy can go towards like figuring out new things. And so what happens is that let's say you drink every day after work at five or whatever it is, your, your brain releases certain chemicals to be able to digest alcohol. Those chemicals are actually the opposite of what alcohol is. So alcohol is kind of like calms you down. It's like a central nervous system depressant. Well, your brain tries to counterbalance that depressant by producing a lot of this other chemical called glutamate, which is sort of excitatory, jittery, uncomfortable, makes you feel like you're sort of going to come out of your skin. Like it's called the, I need a drink feeling. <laughs> and so, um, what happens is, is like, if you're used to drinking every day, your brain gets where it just produces that chemical even before you start drinking. So before you even start drinking, you're at like a deficit of having too much of this chemical, which is why you feel like I really need a drink. Like, I'm just like, I'm not comfortable here. And your anxiety is really high. And it's that really like not good feeling. And then not only that, but if you're used to drinking a gallon of vodka a day, then not only does your brain just immediately produce that much of that counterbalancing chemical, but it produces a gallon's worth. So what happens mm -hmm. is if you ingest, you think I'm just going to drink a beer, a glass of wine, whatever it is tonight, your brain says, okay, alcohol, this equals this, and it produces that much of that counterbalancing chemical. And so you, it is complicated. You build these more neurotransmitters, but basically it's like the brain's like homeostasis thing that it does mm -hmm. to balance you is why you can't stop because you trained your brain. It's like muscle memory. And once it's in there, it's in there. And that's why, you know, like they say things like, you know, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic or, you know, other recovery things like you pick up where you left off. That's why that is. It's because if you activate that part of the brain, it assumes you're going to drink X amount even if that's not the amount you want to drink anymore, it just goes into autopilot with it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That reminds me, I interviewed uh, Dr. Anna Lemke from Stanford. She wrote a book called Dopamine Nation and she, ta mm -hmm. she talks about the seesaw mm -hmm. and it's sort of, it's almost like a, well, I guess it's exactly like Newton's third law for every action. There's the equal and opposite reaction. Yeah, it is exactly that same, same thing with the dopamine. It's just that, you know, there's actually five addictive neurochemicals involved with alcohol more than any other addictive drug. So there's mm -hmm. seven addictive neurochemicals total and alcohol acts on five of them. So you you've got the can we rattle off what they are? Oh gosh. Or I could look it up and, or we could, I'll put it in the show notes later, but it'd be interesting to know what they it's are. It's like dopamine, GABA, glutamate, 
Um, oh, I don't know if I can remember the other two off the top of my head. Well, I'll, we'll look at it. Send them can, to me yeah. and I'll include them in the show notes because I think yeah, it's I really interesting to know what those mm-hmm. neurochemicals are. I mean, we can think of it in simple terms. It's like a circuit, a neurotransmitter circuit. You know, mm-hmm. I think serotonin is probably involved somehow. Maybe a, a deficit is uh, created by alcohol. I'm not really sure, but um yeah, it'd be interesting kind of to know what they're, but I love about understanding about the biology is it depersonalizes it because mm-hmm. I think when we're in these cycles of, um, addictions, it's easy to come to a moral meaning about ourselves. Like I am a bad person. Mm-hmm. That was something that I definitely struggled with. So to understand what the biology is, you know, alcohol, permeates, you know, every cell in your body, it's Mm -hmm. fat soluble, it's water soluble, it permeates every cell in your body. Mm -hmm. So it sort of depersonalized it for me and kind of took the shame out of it. Yeah. I mean, we all can get dependent on anything. Like I'm, like I was saying, you said the coffee, I'm like dependent on caffeine. Like I I don't drink coffee, but I drink diet Pepsis like compulsively. Um, And you know, even when I was pregnant and I tried to stop drinking caffeine, I swear I had a headache for five months. And I was like, is this ever going to go away? Um, And that just happens to us. It's not because of anything good or bad about us. It just happens to us. And and alcoholism happens to us not because we are a bad person, but it will make us do things that we do feel shameful and regretful about. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. But I like how, you know, if we circle back to the beginning, it's separating the behavior from the person Mm -hmm. and understanding that if we hadn't ingested alcohol, that we wouldn't have behaved that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's very difficult to resist that initial trigger though, especially if you're, if your neurotransmitters, your hormones are all out of balance, it's creating the uh, trigger to want to drink or to have that craving. So it becomes very difficult to overcome. So, um, okay. So that's the beginning part is understanding how the alcohol affects you. Um, so how, how do you help people sort of address the beginning, um, understanding that, you know, maybe you're, do you talk to the families as much as you talk to the people who are going through the recovery piece? Well, in my, in my, I have a therapy practice and in my practice, um, we use a team approach. And so I have counselors on staff that see, like I have a counselor that specifically sees parents if they have an addicted child. And I have a counselor who specifically sees the spouses and that kind of thing. I usually am the person in the practice that sees the person with the addiction. Um, but because we work from a family approach, we give everybody like their own counselor. We call it like lawyering. And the reason we do that <laughs> is because most time when families come to see us, there's so much stress, turmoil, hurt feelings, resentments, baggage, all that kind of stuff that it is a family issue and it needs to be worked on as a family. But if you put everybody in the same room, like one of two things can happen. Either no one's going to say anything because they don't want to fight in front of the counselor and then nothing is dealt with. Or people do say what they want to say and then there is a fight in front of the counselor and everyone leaves feeling worse than when they came. So we try to address it by giving everybody their own advocate. That way everyone has their own like confidentiality, their own person to look out for their needs. But as a practice, it's our job to bring both of the sides together. So the counselors treatment team with each other to sort of negotiate, this is what's going on on my end. This is what I need. This is what's going on on my end. This is what we need over here to kind of bring us all towards the middle so that everyone's working on the same page. Most of my YouTube channel a lot of it is is speaking directly towards the person who's trying to overcome an addiction, but a good portion of it is speaking directly to the family about how to be helpful, what's helpful, what's not, what what does the what do these behaviors mean, what's going on inside of you, all that kind of stuff. So we I look at it from a family perspective. I think that is so key. I think that's missing in a lot of a lot of programs is um, dealing with a family because it's the family dynamic, the family environment. And what I hear a lot of times from the family member is they are the problem, not me. Right. Like they're the ones with it. I had this one, <laughs> this one gal was like, let's be clear. He's the problem. And I totally, I totally understand that. And I f- also feel like everybody needs a safe place to be able to process through their feelings mm-hmm. so that when they are in the presence of the person that they're in a relationship with, doesn't matter which end of that, uh, which side of that 
<laughs> debate you're on, um, I feel like it's so important to be able to process through your feelings so that when you do address that person, you're speaking from a calm, truthful place. You're not like siphoning off all this nervous energy. Right. And that's how sort of my treatment model came about was because honestly, it was because the family sabotaged everything I tried to do with the person, you know, and then they're like constantly like calling me like tattletelling everything the person did, you know, and they're like, they did this and they said this and they're probably not going to tell you, but they drank or, you know, whatever it was. And so honestly, my methodology sort of came from that came from like, okay, like I need a person over here to handle these families so I can do what I need to do with this person because they don't, families don't mean to, but they slow the process down. And sometimes they make the process worse. And it's not because they mean to, but it's just because they don't understand what the process looks like and how to interact in a way with that process that actually helps it move faster in the right direction instead of the wrong direction. So um, it, it is hard to tell families, you know, like, well, we want you to come here too, because it can sound to them like you're saying you're the problem, but that's not what we're saying at all. What I'm saying is that addiction causes problems for the person and for everyone around them. Mm-hmm. And in order to unravel the problem that addiction is causing, we're all going to have to be a team. So, yeah. No, yeah, that's great. Okay. So someone comes to you and there is some education about, you know, the starts and stops about the process. We, we talked a little bit about, you know, the bargaining stage to gain control. And then once somebody sort of processes through that and they come to the conclusion, do you, do they come to the conclusion? Well, I guess you work together to come to the conclusion that yes, abstinence is probably the, or abstinence is absolutely the way to go. Is there, is there a point where you're just like, okay, here's the line we've crossed it. Let's talk about abstinence. Yeah. Occasionally people come in and they'll tell me like, oh no, I got to quit drinking completely. I can't control. I've already tried it. And I'm like, sweet. We're like five steps down the road. Awesome. Most of the time people come in where their goal initially is they want to try to control it. And so what I explained to them is that for most people, it, either doesn't work or they end up not liking because it's so dang hard all the time. Um, But that I think it's important for them to figure it out. And so I do believe in the process of letting people try all their things so that, so that in the end they come to terms with the fact it really doesn't work. And then sometimes, you know, if it just goes on forever, I'm like, dude, you know, this isn't working. And they're like, I know, but I had to let it go on long enough so that when I say that to them, they're like, well, I know you're right. You know, not, yeah. they don't have these what like reservations in their head about what if this, what if that, right. you know? Yeah. I think it's so important to resolve those reservations. And then once they do sort of resolve those reservations, um, what kind of counseling or feedback do you give them um, in terms of how to address the family? Cause there's a lot of trust that's broken. Um, so it's like th- there's a process of rebuilding trust with the family, maybe even internally. What is, how do you think about those things? Well, fortunately, most of the people that come in our office and see us, we're, we're helping them do that. Cause I have a whole counselor that's helping do that yeah. for them. Um, but regardless of whether like you have that or not, the the best thing that you can do to help your family is be transparent. What you're doing that's making it worse is, is you're, is you're lying about it and you're trying to gaslight them. And as long as you're lying about it and you're trying to gaslight them, it makes triggers the family to be in this, I'm going to prove it mode. (laughs) And Uh, so they turn and I call it like the CSI, like, (laughs) get your black light in your purse, you know, like you got your hound dogs and, you know, you don't hug people anymore. You just smell checking them. Like, cause you, cause oh, the, yeah. the person with the addiction is constantly telling you like, you're crazy. Like I did not drink. You're always accusing me. So they're, they're lying about it. They're, the and they're telling part. you that you're crazy. So they get like bogged down in finding the evidence, you know, and then they're trying to throw the evidence in your face. And then you, and then that just makes you want to hide it more and do all you know, more of the things you're doing. And so, um, the, the first thing that I do with people and families is I say, well, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to bring everything above board. Even if that's what well, I'm going to drink, I'm going to try to manage it. I say, all right, well, whatever it is, it has to be above board. If you're lying about it, it's out of bounds. So if the thing is, is I'm going to try to limit myself to a case of beer a week, I don't even care what it is. I don't even care if it's a gallon of vodka a day, whatever it is. We're going to bring it above board. We are going to put it in the refrigerator <laughs> and we're not going to lie not hide about it. it. 
right. we're going to teach the family that this is what is going to happen. And honestly, as much as families hate to see that happen, they hate being lied to more. Yeah. They can't stand it. And so, you know, I, I encourage families. I'm like, let's do this process because the, the person with the alcohol problem, the one that usually sees me, this is the narrative. The narrative is I only do that because she's a crazy maniac <laughs> and she was so uptight about it because her daddy was alcoholic and she's just projecting on me and I wouldn't have to hide if she weren't like that. <laughs> and so what we try to do is we try to get the family side to sort of calm down by bringing everything above board. Right. And so what I say is if you can manage your drinking, then you shouldn't need to hide it. So, so no okay. more putting it in your trunk, no more, you know, hiding the mini bottles here and there and everywhere else and taking the swig when you're supposed to be mowing the yard and, you know, like all the stuff. And so let's, the, that's the first thing is it has to come above board and that you should let your family member know, I don't know if this is going to work, but I'm going to try it. And I know that I need to be honest about it because it, regardless of how much you're drinking, if you're lying and sneaking about it, it's addictive behavior and it's only ever going to make you feel terrible about yourself and then terrible about everyone around you. And it's just a not good scenario. So above board is the first thing that happens. I love that. And then, so, okay. So everything's above board. They have a plan. They're going to control it in these ways. And if they fail their markers or the way they plan, then what is the next step? Usually what happens is, is I let them set whatever it is that's their plan. Um, and I usually give them more leeway room, leeway room than they even say so that they can't be like, well, I only said that because I thought that's what you wanted me to say. You know, if they say, well, I want to make sure I don't, you know, drink more than three days a week. If when I do drink, it shouldn't be more than like, you know, three or four beers at a time or whatever. I'll say, OK, let's go with we're not going to drink more than four days a week and we're not going to drink more than six beers at a time, <laughs> you know, so I'll take whatever they tell me and just sort of add a little extra room on that. And then, and then we'll set that as a line and, and it's going to be above board. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to lie. It. I'm going to acknowledge and that kind of thing. And that probably isn't going to work. And then the person's going to be like, well, that was just because it was Super Bowl and Super Bowl messed me up. All right, all right, all right. Let's try it again. So I usually let the person go through that process a few times. Um, so that they can figure it out. You know, they may sort of adjust their limits or what their game plan is, but but you got to kind of trial and error in more than once, because if it's just once that it doesn't work, you can always convince yourself well, it was just some sort of special circumstance or the other. Right. Yeah. Which is what keeps people in denial. That only happened because this, that was only right. because of that. And it's like, we can take any one bad incident and understand it and make a reason for it. We call that rationalizing and justifying. Right. But we got to back up and look at the big picture. Yes, you're right about that one incident, but what about like the 30 others, you know? Like right, yeah, yeah. Lots of evidence. Right. So once we go through that process of trial and error, then I usually ask the person, well, let's try to do at least a 30 days completely no drinking and just see if you feel better and see if that's easier. And I've explained to them, it won't be easier in the beginning. It's going to suck. It's going to feel worse. And, you know, I don't want to set them up for an unrealistic expectation. But once you get to like 30 days, you start to feel better. You start to see things differently. Your body's better. You're more motivated. You know, you, you feel better about your family and that kind of thing. And so I try to get people to do that trial. And they'll usually do that. Um, and then they usually go back to drinking after that. But the key to that isn't because I think they're not going to drink after that. The key to that is I want them to see what real sobriety is like, mm -hmm. because most of the time when you're in that terrible cycle, you think, well, I don't even like, I don't even think life's worth living being sober. Like, I don't even know if I, that just sucks, you know, because in your mind, when you're in the active cycles of it, you can't have fun without it. And life does suck without it. And you do feel terrible without it. And you don't have anything to look forward to without it. So in your mind, when you think about being sober, you think about that feeling, which is actually withdrawal. <laughs> and so right. you have to get people sober long enough so they can get past that like acute withdrawal part to see what it's really like. And so what happens is, is I get them to do like the 30 day sober usually. And then, um, I, they get a little glimpse of actually I did feel better. I felt better in the mornings. My health was better. I was breathing better. You know, like these things start to fix. And then they go back to drinking. And then like two weeks in, they're like, I feel like crap again. Yeah. And so what I want them to notice at that point is the distinct difference between 
this side of the fence, yeah. this side of the fence. Yeah. And so having that data, I think helps people to start to really connect the dots of like, okay, the manager, it didn't work. It kind of sucked. Like I didn't like, you know, it was hard and it didn't work anyways. When I was completely sober, that actually did work. I actually did feel better and it actually got easier. And when I went back to drinking, I told myself, like I had my 30 days sober, I was going to drink, but it was a total reset and I was not going to drink like I drank before. And now it's totally reset and it's going to be different. It's not different. <laughs> never it's never different. I'm, just, I'm telling you the answer ahead right here. Like, geez, yeah. it's not different Yeah, <laughs> because of all that brain stuff we talked about earlier. And so it's this process that I help take people through, but it's, it's, can you, the key to the process is not only like the trial and error and figuring that out for yourself, but also in my mind, the family is a big piece of it because what the family does during this process naturally is they're mad, they're upset, they scream, yell, holler, nag, preach, threaten, ultimatum, spy, all the things that they do because that's a very natural response. I'm not video from the families for doing that, right? They're afraid. And they're sick of it. Not blame them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Scared and angry. What happens when your family's doing that is you get caught up in defending yourself Mm. and focusing on being resentful towards them and focusing on being mad that they're trying to control you and being mad that that's all they ever talk about and that's all they ever see. And when you're busy being all upset about that, it's distracting you from learning these lessons. And that's why people can get caught in this bargaining cycle forever. Whereas if the family can just tolerate it and let someone go through the bargaining, we can come out the other end faster. Yeah. Because otherwise, like every time you try, you say something to somebody that makes them defend their drinking, like you're solidifying it in their head that they're either, you know, they don't have alcoholism or it's not that bad or, you know, whatever it is, you don't want to get someone to, to say or think the opposite of that. That's so interesting. You know, you know where I see that dynamic is in relationships. Like a girlfriend comes and tells you about, you Mm -hmm. know, the person that she's dating or married to or whatever. And she has all these horrible things. If you say anything bad about him, like, oh, you need to dump his ass. He's a horrible person, blah, blah, blah. You put her in a position to defend him. That's right. And it's a natural human response. It's not just with like addiction. It's just that with addiction, the situation is so inflamed. They're constantly coming at you. With it, and you're constantly defending it. And I'm like, yeah. man, you're slowing down the process. And then they, right. the other person just gets like dug in on trying to like prove you wrong or right. sneak behind your back. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's just like throwing us off track here when we could be like learning these lessons. Like, let's get this done. Yeah, it does. Uh, yeah. And I'm so, so that makes perfect sense why the family needs support through this process. They, because mm-hmm. they, they're trying to manage their own fear. It's hard to watch somebody you love suffer, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, you know, again, compassion and empathy for all involved. It's a very difficult process. How do, you know, we talked about rebuilding trust. Um, how do you, t- how do you address that in the, fa- in the person actually? It's like, okay, you're, you're dealing with a person who is healing from this, Right. Mm -hmm. And let's say they get through the 30 days and they decide um, maybe they drink again and they come to that conclusion. Okay. Now I know for sure. Um, You know, and it's a very scary feeling to be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to give up the one thing. Sometimes Mm -hmm. the only thing that brings um, peace or pleasure. And I understand that, you know, sometimes it can take a year for your neurotransmitters to, that's what healing is, is, mm-hmm. is like rebalancing all of your, you know, emotion, you know, reward, you know, neurotransmitters and, and, and reward system. Um, so how do you help somebody, uh, rebuild trust with their family? So after the process of when someone decides, okay, like, I'm really, like, I'm really doing it. Like, I'm really going to be sober. Yeah, I'm in it. And- and I don't think you need to do this right away, but but you do need to sort of recognize what your family's been through. And I know it's hard because you're going through something really hard and you're just barely like dealing with your own self right now. So it's hard to even do more than that. But if you can just, there's a few little things that if you can just do that will help your family, it actually make your life a lot easier because they will uh, back off of you and not yes. drive you crazy and stop. How to get your family off your back. How to get your family off your back, right. <laughs> 
And I know that when you're in this situation, you've already apologized a million times and you've already made a bazillion promises. So, you know, you could even go in and say those things, but your family member is just going to be like, I don't heard all that before. You know, what's going to be different this time? That's what they're going to say to you. A little less talk, a lot more action. Mm-hmm. Right. So the <laughs> action the song goes. That's all right. The action is important, but the family actually does really want you to acknowledge it. Mm. And what they want you to acknowledge is two things. They want you to acknowledge that you get that it's a problem. So the first thing you need to do is you need to acknowledge that. And you can do that without saying, I promise I'm never going to drink again or whatever. You can say, I do realize that this is a problem and I'm going to keep on this and figuring it out until I, until I solve this issue. Cause I know this problem. That's huge. That's mm-hmm. huge. It, just the acknowledgement. I didn't realize it until you said it, but yeah, that's what they want to hear. It's an, right. an admission that you are aware and that you are trying. Right. Exactly. And so that's huge for the family. And then the second piece that, that the family wants to hear is, is that you get how whatever that is impacts them specifically. And so it's, yes, I get that this is a problem and I get that it's not just a problem for me. It's a problem for you in the following ways and like literally say the word. So I'm like, if you're going to apologize, that's cool. You need to do that. But you need to say like something more specific. I'm really sorry because I know that my drinking makes you feel like you can't leave me alone with our children. I know that my drinking makes you feel worried every time I'm 10 minutes late coming home and you start thinking I've been in an accident. I know that my drinking makes you feel worried about what's going to happen at the family event. And then you worry, you know, like, how are you going to like deal with me if I get too intoxicated? Say specifically and even give specific examples of things that have happened and how that has affected the other person, because that's what that person needs in order to heal. They want to know that you get it. And you don't have to say that all the time. You don't have to go through that every day. In fact, if you just can go through this in a real sincere way, um, you're going to help the other person heal faster, which is going to help you heal faster. Plus, you're going to be releasing all that shame and guilt instead of feeling like you have to defend it and hide from that person, which even if you're not drinking, keeps this terrible, like addictive dynamic going on, which is just no good. So it's really part of your healing process, I think, to do that. No, that's huge. So I'm hearing they need validation and they get that through specific um, situations about what their experience, about what their experience is. Right. Instead of saying, you know, it's hard for me. You don't get it. But well, don't say that, you know, you need to say that you get their experience too. And then that the, the third piece that I think is crucial is you're going to have to come to terms with the fact that you're going to have to be super duper extra transparent, whether you feel like that's warranted or not. And you just Mm got to own that you have traumatized your family. And, you know, you traumatized yourself too, (laughs) you know? And so you can even say, well, it was your addiction that did it, however you want to say it, but there's, there's been hurt that's happened and trust that's lost. And so if you're going to be 10 minutes late coming home from work that normally would not be that big of a deal. If you're stuck in traffic, like who cares? You need to be able to pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm stuck in traffic, going to be 10 minutes late. When normally, like you, no one would even think anything about it. You know, they wouldn't even notice you were 10 minutes late or whatever. You're going to have to be extra transparent. Hey, I did stop at the store today. I used my debit card. I bought this and this and this or whatever. And it, it feels belittling in some ways, but actually... Mm. The thought of doing it feels bullying, but doing it actually can feel kind of empowering because you're taking control of that situation. Whereas when you don't do that and then they chase you down and then they're trying to spy it and then they're trying to like make you admit it, that isn't, that's just not a good cycle. So it's the everything above board, be committed to being extra, super duper transparent. Like even if it feels like excessively so, that'll help your family heal faster. And the more they're off your back, the easier it is for you. (laughs) Yeah, I I can appreciate. It's like in the very beginning, it's like you feel so bad about who you are, right? That it almost sort of kicks in this weird pride dynamic. It's this defensive, like you're so sensitive. It's almost like you have to be over. But Mm -hmm. 
so I understand the whole, like, it feels belittling, but like you said, like we learn to turn, you know, we call them defects into assets and 12 step mm-hmm. or whatever, but, but what we're doing is, um, when you, I, I really got the sense of freedom. Like when you were describing that situation, it's like, if you just call to check in and let mm-hmm. somebody know that you're going to be a little late, there's a sense of freedom that comes with that. Because I know that if I'm going to be late and I, I don't let that other person know, I know that they're expecting me and it puts this pressure on me. Right. And, and then I when you can't do come home, you it. feel them thinking it. Yeah. And that makes you feel defensive. <laughs> Even if yeah. they don't say anything, you know, you see the look. Looks, you feel the smell check, you know, and it's no good. Smell check. Yeah, they go in for the hug and they're like, uh-huh. yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it, okay. it's allowing you to take control of it. So I say, you yeah. say it before they say it. You think yeah, it before yeah. they think it. And then you have the control back, which does feel more empowering. Yeah. You got the control. There's, you know, there's a lot of talk about powerlessness and, and really, uh, we are trying to find ways to feel more at peace, find mm-hmm. relief and find empowerment. So mm-hmm. um, this is very actionable, very specific ways you can feel the control and empowerment. Right. If I had to sort of narrow it down to like one thing to remember all these little pieces of devices, you know what they're thinking. They've done said it to you a million times. I know, you know, you <laughs> say it before they say it. You say it before they even think it and you're even better. So when you have to have a really hard conversation with someone, you you say it before them and it like it addresses that and then they stop thinking it and then they can hear everything else you're about to say. But when you don't say what you know they're thinking, they can't think about anything else except that one thing. Like, so for example, like when I get new clients that I can feel are coming in and I can feel they're like, oh my God, this because most people that come see me initially are coming in because they're like somebody drugged them in to see me, you know, like their mom, you know, something. And I'll say, it's kind of weird seeing you're talking to some woman. You don't even know about your private crap. Right. Cause I know they're thinking that and they're like, I know. Right. <laughs> like totally weird. Right. Weird for me too. And then we're moving, we're past it and we're done and we've addressed it. And then now it's gone. Now we can deal with whatever else is there. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's yeah. so interesting. This, uh, we all have such a deep need to be seen, heard mm-hmm. and understood. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why people shout at each other in an argument, because it's like, you are not hearing me. So I have to be louder. Right. Right. And so, but when you just, just that simple acknowledgement totally de-escalates a situation. And that's mm-hmm. often what we need in a crisis is to de-escalate. Right. And the qu- quickest That's way right. to do that is to, you know, say what they're thinking. Like you said, right. That's so good. We, like, I know what you're thinking. It's such a habit of like trying to avoid the conversation that like yeah. literally like our whole life is just around, like, just not talking about it and not bringing it up. <laughs> and so it's so like counter our instincts to bring it up first. Yeah. But I promise you, if you just bring it up first, you know, if you're going to go hang out with your friends and you know, your mama is already thinking what you're going to be doing, just <laughs> say it, say, I'm going to go hang out with my friends. I know you're probably worried about this. I'm worried about it too. Mm. I'm aware that it could be an issue. Here's what my thoughts are on it. Now we're done instead of this game plan that goes on between families that drives everyone crazy, you know? Yeah, man, that avoidance is so strong, but there's that saying what we resist persists. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you just, you know, that that's a great strategy, acknowledgement, transparency, and just say what they're thinking, mm-hmm. acknowledge it. And, you know, yeah, you can move on from there. I would imagine that brings a huge sense of relief to the, to the families. It's like, okay, they get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're almost in there. I was like, now what do I do? Now what do I do? <laughs> they don't even know what to say next because I've just been like trying to get you to hear this one thing. They're like, okay, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That puts an end to the argument, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. That's amazing. It really does. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about relapse prevention. Do you have a, uh, is there a, a place for that conversation in the process somewhere for you? Well, I think relapse prevention is um, the way I look at it is two-sided. It's the person who's battling the whatever it is, and then the family who's also battling their whatever it is. It's, it's a two-way street. So for the person who's trying to stop some kind of addictive behavior, the best thing you can do for re- relapse prevention is create an accountability system that makes it very difficult for you to relapse. 
So like with alcohol, like in our office, we use something called a Soberlink, which is kind of like an alcohol monitoring device, but there are other things you can do. But what you want to do is you want to create accountability. One easy way you can do that is make sure um, that there's someone at your work that knows that you're not drinking anymore. You don't have to tell them every single thing, but they they need to know that. If you hang out with you know, your three best friends and they're used to you drinking and you think, well, I'm just not going to tell them I'm not drinking, I'm just not going to drink, that's a bad system. You, you need to go ahead and put things in place that would make it very difficult for you to relapse. Because no matter how bad you want it, like today you're 100% and you're like, I'm never drinking again and you totally mean it. There's going to be a day when your resolve is low. You've had a bad day, you're wore out, you know, it's rough at work, you had an argument with somebody and your willpower is running low because that's what happens to all of us. And if you don't put those things in place, you leave too much room to just be like, F it. Because there are going to be days when you don't want to be sober and you got to plan ahead for those days and put the things in place that's going to hold you solid even on those days. Yeah, we call that having a bad case of the fuckets. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Like, I don't care anymore. F it. Like, whatever. Yeah. Right. Um, How do you feel about uh, peer support groups like Celebrate Recovery, 12 Step, um, Refuge, like all those, all those peer support programs? Do you have your people in in both, like one on one counseling with you and a supplemental thing? I try to encourage people to find some kind of group that fits them and a lot of my clients do and some of them don't what I will tell people about it is you can't recover in secret Mm, (laughs) because you can't trust your own self when it comes to this one issue so you're going to have to tell some people about it whether that's um, your family and friends your support group your counselor your A lot of times people just want to do it in secret. And there's a couple of reasons. One reason they want to do it in secret is because they might change their mind and they don't want to tell people that they're not drinking anymore and they want to leave the room for changing their mind. But the problem with leaving the room for changing your mind is it makes it really tempting. So it's the, you know, you can't do it alone kind of thing. I do kind of believe you, you have to have some people in your life that you trust enough to listen to them when they can see something that you can't. So whether that's a sponsor, a coach, a counselor, a family member, and you usually need a few people. Friend, yeah. What if your one person's busy today and it's your day you need it? You know, know. So, so you need some backups and some backups. So I do think you stuff. need other people and there are many ways of finding that. And there are many great support groups that do it, but if you're not going to do that, you, we got to do it somehow, some way. We got to get those pieces in place. Yeah, just find, find some people find some people, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I have run, you know, in the, you know, 28 years I've been sober. I have seen people who are like fiercely, like, I want to do it on my own sober in secret. Do you, what? uh, And to me, that's a trauma response. Maybe like in childhood, they just didn't have anybody that they could trust to care for their feelings. Um, how do you, do do you get those people in your practice who are like, just have a really hard time trusting anybody? Well, the statement in and of itself, as the first thing I actually address, I want to do it in and of, by myself. I'm like, there's only, that's the only way it can be done. No one can do it for you. And right. by telling other people, you uh. are still doing it by yourself. Like sometimes people will say, well, I don't want to do that. That's cheating. Like a sober link or some people take like anabuse. I'm like, no, it's not. That is you saying, I want to do this so much. I'm going to do everything to make sure it happens. It's the opposite of what we're trying to tell ourselves. Right. Like when we say, I want you to ask him about it. I want you to make me breathless. I want you. Then what you're doing is you are running the show and you're making damn sure mm. that you're going to do it. There, no one else can do it for you. There's nothing anyone else can do. Right. So bringing other people on board is still doing it yourself. It's just, it's just really making sure you're doing it yourself. No, that's such a good point. Nobody. Yeah. You are doing it on your own. I can't, I mean, I'm a counselor. Can't do anything for yeah, you yeah. other than listen to you. Like, or, <laughs> all yeah, I think you're telling me some baloney or something, you know, um, you mentioned something a couple of times, a sober link. I I'm not familiar with what that is. Um, Soberlink is like an alcohol breathalyzing device that we use a lot in our office, but it's, it's sort of high tech. It, um, the way it works, the way we use it is, um, we 
the client and myself come up with like a testing schedule. Usually it's like three times a day at first, like when you wake up for bed somewhere in the middle. And it's not designed to trick you or catch you. It's designed to prevent you. And that's the key in my mind. So the person and I come up with a schedule and then they get like a text message that says, hey, you got, you know, your your morning test, whenever it is. And then they have like an hour to do it. But if they miss it or they're positive or late or something, then I get a message (laughs) that that tells me that they've missed it. And then I I like to tell them that like a hologram of me appears and it says, I'll see you, you know, but. (laughs) Really, I just text them and check on them. <laughs> That's all. Oh, okay. But it, it uh, creates okay. accountability there. And it has like facial recognition and stuff in it. So there's no like cheating in it. Nothing. Okay. Yeah. If you have a resource for, for that, I'll I'll put that in the show notes if you want okay, to see yes, oh, That's really interesting. Yeah. Just temporary, right? It's, it's just a temporary, just I to get them over to the over Right. The I usually say people should... I usually suggest people do something like that, like for like three months. Um, And it's not like I have to, it's not like they're like contracted. I'm just saying like, that's just a good time because that lets you create new habits and like just, you know, neural pathways and stuff. So yeah, healing is part of the healing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What I love about our brain, you know, the whole idea of neuroplasticity is that those connections that that we use, you know, what you think about, you bring about neurons that fire together, wire together. Mm-hmm. Um, so that happens in that three month period. What's, what's not often talked about is the habits you don't do. Those neural connections are actually pruned. Mm-hmm. Right. And, right, and yeah. so, and so that's, you know, again, part of the biology so that we can understand that, you know, oh, we're not bad people. It's just like, this is like the current biology and we have neuroplasticity, mm-hmm. which means that your brain can change we can right. learn and your brain can change. You can make that same sort of scientific principle work for you instead of against you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. this whole thing boils down to like, we are for you, mm-hmm. right? Like I am like my own recovery. I am for me. Mm-hmm. Like I am doing these, I do these things for me right? Out, out of love, not out of uh, control or right. Manipulate. We don't like to be controlled or manipulated. Nobody does. So, but it's, it's like you said, it's like, we are doing it for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Love that. Um, okay. So I feel like we've covered a lot of ground oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and how to deal with the families, how families can, um, participate in actually helping and identifying some things that they might be doing that aren't helping. Um, you have so many resources. Yeah. I saw your, you, you have a lot, what, like 55,000 subscribers on YouTube. It's probably higher since I checked it last, but, uh, very, you have lots of good resources. You have lots of free resources. Mm -hmm. People can work with you directly. Um, so I'm going to leave link, a link in the show notes to your YouTube channel, but if someone's just listening, what's it called? It's called put the shovel down. And sometimes that's confusing <laughs> that's hilarious. to people. Put but the shovel down. I say you hit your bottom when you put your shovel down. That's what that means. Like you can, you can decide you're done anytime you want to. <laughs> yes. We don't have yeah. to hit the rock bottom person. And if your family is driving you crazy and you're trying, then send them over there because that's a lot of what we talk about on there is the family pieces. Okay. And, um, once your family can come on board and then you're like a United team figuring this out, it just becomes so much easier and better. Yeah. Yeah. It really does. I think there's, um, it's, you know, the fear management, the fear resolution. That's really important. It sounds like there's a lot to address the fears for the families. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And if somebody wants to reach out to you and find more about, cause you do online counseling, you can help people mm-hmm. all over. So what is the best way for someone to reach out to you? Um, you can go to my website and there's um, lots of ways to get us through the website, but it's familyrecoveryacademy.online. I'm writing this down. Family recovery academy. Academy, Yeah. Dot what? Dot online. Dot online. Brilliant. 
Well, Amber, this has been so helpful. So I, I love practical information that you can, that can be applied right away. And there were so mm -hmm. many things in our conversation today that people can immediately start applying, not the least of which is, you know, validating somebody else's feelings, just being transparent. Mm -hmm. I think that's huge. Like if you want to get someone off your back, just be transparent. Be right. honest, honest yeah. and transparent. It's so funny that our instinct is to hide and deny, <laughs> mm -hmm. but yeah, it's the opposite. Do the op contrary, contrary behavior. Yeah. If you're not sure, just say, what do I want to do? Okay. Do the opposite of that. <laughs> Sometimes that's the thing. Yeah. Do, yeah. do what you don't want to do and don't do what you want to do. <laughs> that's right. Until it becomes a new habit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, Amber, thank you so much for our time together. I, I just love the work that you're doing. And I just want to encourage you, I, ever, anybody that is helping people with addiction issues has a, I have a soft spot in my heart for them. So thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. Yeah. Same to you. Thank you for all you're doing. Yeah. And we'll talk soon. All right. We'll talk soon. One last thing before you go, you can follow the podcast on Instagram for daily inspiration at ODAT podcast. And if you'd like to get a bi-weekly email from me with recommendations to books I'm reading, meditations I love, or other recovery podcasts, just sign up for it at odatchat.com. That's O-D-A-A-T chat.com. And if you do, I hope you enjoy it.